The book of Joshua is about how God's people moved from wandering aimlessly in the desert to entering into, to taking possession of that which God had promised them. It's about entering the promise. And for every Christian, there are fantastic promises in the Bible for us to take hold of. Promises for us to enter into, to enjoy truths upon which we can build our lives to great heights. But all too often, if you're like me, we find ourselves wandering somewhere in the desert rather than uh, getting into those promises. We find ourselves aimlessly outside. We know those promises are there, but somehow they're over there and I haven't entered into them fully for myself as yet. My prayer is that that we study this book, we'll understand some of God's principles for moving out of the desert into his promise for our lives. I realize that for some of us here, the book of Joshua is brand new. Maybe you've never heard of Joshua, let alone read his book. Joshua is the boy next door, the most popular, one of the most popular boys' names now in the UK. Therefore, as we go through this story, I'm going to do my best to help you get to grips with what's going on here and to see how it fits into the whole story of what God is doing with his people through the Old Testament. And some of our thoughts this morning in chapter 1 will help us see, I hope, where this story fits in to the whole. So, you ready? Let's begin uh, together. As chapter 1 of Joshua Uh, begins, God's people, as I said a moment ago, have been wandering around rather aimlessly in the desert for some 40 years. You need to understand that that was never God's plan. God's plan was that 40 years ago, having left Egypt down here on the left, they would travel across the desert, down through the bottom of the Dead Sea, up to the east of the River Jordan there, and enter the Promised Land, which is there, that way. That was God's plan that they would make that journey. The trouble was God's people being God's people thought they knew a bit better than God and when they were in the desert here they got themselves into a right pickle. They got themselves into such a mess that they even started worshipping idols. They built themselves a golden calf and they bowed down to it, would you believe, instead of bowing down to the Lord their God. And they refused to believe that God really would lead them into the promised land. It all went terribly wrong. And as a result of their disobedience, they ended up spending some 40 years wandering around in the desert. That was never God's intention, but that's how it ended up. But now, at the beginning of Joshua, a new generation is ready to trust God, and there they are camped to the east of the Jordan, ready to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. This book is for all those who with renewed trust and vision want to leave the desert behind and get into God's promise. And the first thing they discovered as they camped to the east of the Jordan, as God began to speak to them afresh in Joshua chapter 1, the first thing they discovered is that God had a plan for them. You need your Bibles open. You need Joshua 1 open in front of you to to grasp what we're saying here. Some will be on the screen, but not all of it. It's page, whatever page it is. Page 216. 216. If you're using the Bible that's in front of you in the pew. So there they are, camped to the east of the Jordan, believing this time 
that they're going to move into the promised land. Now then, verse 2, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. God is speaking to Joshua. God had a plan, and the plan was to give them the land. But before we understand something more about this plan of God to give them a land, why a land and why was he giving this land to them anyway? Before we think about that, we need to notice very clearly whose plan it was. Look at me with these opening verses in your Bibles. Joshua 1 verses 1 to 5. God is speaking to Joshua. Hear the strength of the first person beating like a drum. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into the land I am about to give them. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Verse 5, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. You will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Hear the beat of the drum. I and I and I. Who's the I? It's God. This is what God was doing. Basic to our understanding of this book is that here is not a story about what Joshua will do, and it's not a story either about what God's people will do. This is a story about what God will do. And because it was a story about what God would do, it didn't matter one jot that Moses was dead because God was still alive. Hallelujah. You see, it was the most ridiculous time Excuse me, I'm going to have a sliver of this. I hope it's been changed since I was last here. (laughs) Humanly, it was rubbish. The most brilliant, fantastic leader the people of God had ever known, humanly speaking, was now dead. You can imagine them looking at each other and saying, Crikey, if Moses is dead, we're stuffed. We'll never make it out of this desert. No, God addresses Joshua in verse 5 very directly. As I was with Moses so I will be with you. What was about to happen was not going to be about the people, nor about their leader, but it was going to be about God. And this is the perspective that is the fundamental difference from staying somewhere lost in the desert to moving into God's promise. It's to realize that the story of your life is not about you, but it's all about God. You see, in every single part of your life where you think the story is about you, you remain in the desert. Your work, your relationships, your church, your family, your networks, if it's about you, you're stuffed. If it's about me, I'm stuffed too. They would only make it into the promised land if they were to understand and know it was God's story not theirs. They would only stay, as we shall see in chapter 7, they will only stay in the promised land if they remain true to it being God's story and not theirs. It's a hard place to start a new term together, isn't it? But if really the bottom line is that you want the story of your life to be about you, then forget it. That's not the deal. It's never been the deal. Rick Warren, presumably still wearing colourful shorts and laughing at his own jokes, was absolutely right in the first four words of his book 
It's not about you. God's people spent 38 years wandering in the desert because they wanted the story to be about them. Only when they were willing for it to be about God did they enter the promise. And Christians can spend just as long in the desert for exactly the same reason. Sure, they're Christians, and God is certainly a part of their story, but that's the problem. It's still their story, and they wonder why they're not living in the blessing that God speaks of in His Word. Maybe right at the outset, some of us, all of us, need to repent this morning for treating life as if it's our story. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Every single day, what I listen to, what I watch, what I read, almost from everywhere so it's inescapable, I am being told that my life is about me. But it's not. But it's not. It's about God. And it always has been, and it always will be. Are you willing this morning for your life to be God's story. That's where the book of Joshua begins. And if they weren't willing, the book never would have been written and the stories we will read never would have happened. It was about it being God's story. So, God made a plan. It was God's plan, God's story. But what was the plan? Why was God giving them this land anyway? Well, to be honest, it wasn't really about the land. It wasn't really about the land at all. God's plan was so much bigger than the land. Let's think about it for a minute. And to understand God's plan, we need to go right back to the beginning. The Bible says right in the beginning that having made a beautiful world, human beings rebelled against God. Our rebellion was a catastrophic disaster, wasn't it? All around the world, every single day, we see the catastrophe of our rebellion. We found ourselves separated from God, struggling to get on with each other, and the whole world just not working like God had intended. Pain, sickness, disease, violence, hatred, death, all became part of the story. God was gutted. He loved us so much, and now he'd lost us. He could hardly bear to see the mess we were in. And his heart was crushed that we didn't know him anymore. We didn't know him anymore. Remember that very powerful moment in Genesis chapter 3? God goes walking in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? It wasn't that God didn't know where Adam was, but Adam no longer knew where he was. So God set in motion a plan to win us back. Isn't that fantastic? God's plan was this. God's plan was that he would start with one man and his family. And he would bless that one man, and he would bless that one man's family, so that they would grow to become a great nation of blessing. And that God would continue to pour out his blessing on this great nation so that they would become a blessing to all the nations of the world. And so beginning with one man, God would win us back. That one man was Abraham. And you can read about its beginnings in Genesis chapter 12. And I'd like to take you there just for a moment to Genesis chapter 12, and particularly to this summary verse of God's plan in verse 2. Because God is beginning to explain to Abraham what this plan is all about. And God says to Abraham way back, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will make you into a great nation. The book of Joshua 
is about God giving the people a land into which they could be that great nation. But it was not about the land. It was about the blessing of God going to the ends of the earth. That was the heart of God's plan. It was his blessing, not the land that matters. Notice the two key elements here in this promise. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. First part of God's plan is that I will bless you. Second part of God's plan is that you will be a blessing. And you know what? This is still God's plan for his people today. Several thousand years later, God has not changed. He still works in the same way and he longs to bless you and to make you a blessing. That's God's plan writ large over your life, your family, your work, his church, writ large. His plan to bless you and make you a blessing. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 was our church text, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. God still longs to bless. That's his plan. The rest of the Bible is the working out of this promise. Jesus, of course, was central to it, but that's another story. God's plan was to bless. But I meet many Christians who don't believe it. I meet many Christians for whom God is the giver of tyranny, not treasure. Burden, not blessing. They wouldn't generally say it. But when everything is stripped away in their most honest moments, they feel it and they think it. We find it easier to believe that bad things come from God sometimes than good things. I can hear little celebration of all the good that God is doing. It's not, a, not just rare, I don't think it's ever happened that someone has come to me and said, Simon, I feel so blessed, why is God blessing me like this? But the moment something goes wrong, within minutes we're asking the question, God, why? as if somehow he is personally responsible for the burden that we are now facing. As if somehow he wished this bad thing on us. There is a bent in humanity that finds it easier to believe that God is into burdens rather than blessings. And if you were brought up in, in the don't move, can't do, can't sit on a Sunday regime, perhaps it's understandable why you think God is into burdens and not into blessings. One of the greatest lies that Satan has spun among God's people is that God doesn't really want to bless. And even if he does want to bless, then he doesn't really want to bless you. Because you're not smart enough, or lovable enough, or worth enough, or good enough, or clever enough, or short enough, or tall enough. And we've lost touch of this truth that runs right through the pages of Scripture that God wants to bless you. Why? Because he loves you and he likes you. I don't understand it either, but it's just the way it is. Hallelujah. You see, I can have a miserable day with my kids. We can be crabby. Oh, of course, we're a Christian family. When we come to church, we will be a Christian family. But when the doors are closed, sometimes we can be crabby. And we can be cantankerous. And we can get frustrated, maybe even angry. But at the end of the day, when my hit when my head hits the pillow, I just want to bless them because I love them. What was God longing as they wandered aimlessly through the desert? Hello? 
He was, what's his plan? He was longing to bless them. But they were too thick-skinned and too stubborn-hearted. Jesus pushed it home, didn't he? He said, get your heads around this, people. If you, though you are human, evil fathers that sometimes haven't got a clue, even you clueless human beings sometimes know how to give good things to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, from all the wonderful things about fatherhood comes, how much more will your Father in heaven know how to give good things? If you have not got that view of God, if you can't imagine God as a father who on this Sunday morning, on the 3rd of September, just wants to bless you, then I have to say, with all the love for you in the world, you've got a problem. And your Christian life will struggle to grow. You've got God wrong. And until you get God right, not only in your head, but also in your heart, you'll find it almost impossible to enter God's promise because you can't really believe it's there for you. Quite a lot of my time in personal ministry is spent helping people to try and recapture this truth, that God is a loving Father who longs to bless them. And it's a truth that life experience has so often crushed and squeezed out of people, obliterated any sense of it from them because their life has been hard and that we assume that that's God's will for us and it's claptrap and it keeps people in the desert for far too long. He wants to bless you, you know. Anyone else believe that with me? He wants to bless And the second part, he wants you to be a blessing. None of this God would never use me. What on earth could God do with me? He wants to bless you and use you to bless others. He wants you to be a blessing. That's the fundamental part of God's plan for his world. And if you can't imagine God using you to bless others, you've got a problem. Because that's exactly what he wants to do. And we need to learn to believe in ourselves as much as God already believes in us. Why are you in your job? Why are you in this church? Why do you live in that street? Why have you got that family? Why do you know those people? To bless them. To bless them. That's what you're there for. Makes a difference tomorrow morning, doesn't it? To know you're there to bless them. That's why you're there. And so in these opening verses, God reminds Joshua that, it, that he's, he's joining something big, part of God's great plan. Promise to Moses, verse 3. Promise to his forefathers, right back to Abraham, verse 6. Which takes us to the second major heading in this chapter. It was a plan that Joshua could have confidence in because it was based on God's promise. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. This was a guaranteed promise. The original language is incredibly strong. It's words that cannot be changed or revoked. A promise that they could trust. What was the promise? The promise that it was that God would use them to accomplish his plan. I will lead these people to inherit the land I will give. I will use these people in my plan. It was time for them to act on God's promise. It was no good them sitting on the wrong side of the Jordan, that river that separated them from God's promised land, and saying, hey, it's fab, you know, God's promised it to us. Now was the time for them to get up and to be strong and courageous and to trust God's 
promise. God has promised to use every single Christian for his good purpose, true or false. True. You're absolutely right. The Bible reminds us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God has promised to use you. That's God's bottom line. We have to act on the promise. For all the truth of the promise, they would still be sitting the wrong side of the Jordan if they hadn't got up and acted on it. It was time to be strong and courageous because God had promised the land to them. And so in our day, it's time to be strong and courageous. Why? Because God has promised to use us, to bless us, and to make us a blessing. The trouble is, all too often, we find ourselves sitting around waiting for some great word from God when He's already given us His promise. Now is the time. Not to wait for what he says, but to get on with what he's already said. Now is the time to be strong and courageous, not because we're waiting for some great lightning bolt from heaven, but because he has already, in his word, said, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. Just get out there and be that blessing. Does God want to use us? Hello? Does God want to use us? Has God promised to use us? Will God use us? Good, you decide. We decide whether God uses us. Pray he doesn't do something mega in this nation and not use us, hey? Oh, God, use us. But we decide. You see, there's a story about a sitter and a stander. The sitter was smiling contentedly, reading a book as he sat at a pavement cafe with sunglasses Panama hat, tropical print shirt, Bermuda shorts, and spotless white running shoes matched his mood of permanent leisure. An umbrella kept him in the shade. On the table at his elbow sat a tall glass of iced tea and a shining white telephone. Yawning, he slowly turned a page in his well-worn book. He was about to take a sip of the iced tea when he heard a voice. Hey, cried the voice. He looked up. It was the stander. And she was approaching his table. He frowned, but only for a moment, and went back to his reading. What do you know, the girl greeted him, putting her hands on her hips. Is that really you? Long time no see. Hmm, went the sitter, not looking up. So what have you been doing all this time, the girl asked. The sitter nodded towards his book, which he continued to read. Studying, of course, he said rather proudly. The girl scratched her head, studying. Well, I guess that's... And then glancing across the street, she gasped. Hey, she said, what's going on over there? Hmm? The sitter murmured. An old man has just fallen down on the pavement, she said urgently. Come on, we'd better go and help him. She ran off, leaving the sitter reading in the shade. Slowly, he turned another page. It was his only movement. A minute later, the stander returned, panting from a dash. Well, she said between breaths, he's okay. She frowned. Hey, how come you didn't come and help? Irritated, he looked up from his book. Because I'm waiting, of course, he said. Waiting for what, she asked. For the call, he replied, nodding at the phone on the table. The stander shook her head. What's the... Just then, she happened to look down a nearby alley. Look, she cried, that kid has just snatched a lady's puss. Come on, we can probably catch him. Off she ran again. And the sitter just sat. 
Two minutes later, she was back, huffing and puffing. Hey, she said, what kind of neighbourhood is this? People falling in the streets, kids snatching purses. And what's the matter with you? Hey, come. How come you didn't come and help? The sitter lifted his head and glared. Because I didn't get the call. What call, the girl asked, exasperated. The call, he answered, looking skyward. The girl threw up her hands. I don't. And all at once she noticed something else down the street. Oh, did you see that? She asked, putting her hand to her mouth. That car has just left and plowed right into the motorcycle. Now, come on. Don't just sit there. We must go and help. The sitter sipped his iced tea. I'm sorry, he said, unconcerned. But I'm just not called. The girl started to run in the direction of the accident. What are you studying anyway? She shouted at him over her shoulder. First aid, he said placidly, returning to his reading. Three minutes later, the girl was back, so exhausted she could barely stand. I've got to use your phone, she gasped. She said, gasping for breath. What? The sitter cried, suddenly alert. I've got to call for an ambulance for that guy, she panted, and reached for the shining white telephone. The sitter leapt from his chair, wrestling the phone away. You can't do that, he said, eyes suddenly all panicky. Why? The call could come at any moment. I might get the call any minute now. And all at once, ring, went the telephone. The sound froze the sitter and the stander in their tracks. Time itself seemed to pause as the sitter looked down at the phone in his arms. He swallowed. Hi. Oh my, he said, trembling. It's, it's finally happened. Oh, what an honour. I finally received the call. Carefully, gingerly, he picked up the receiver. Yes, he breathed into the mouthpiece. For a moment he listened. Then he took the receiver from his ear and stared at it, anger gathering at his face. I don't believe it, he cried. It's for you. Grabbing his iced tea and his first aid manual, the sitter stalked off. The stander chatted cheerily to the voice on the other end, as if she'd been listening to it all of her life. Will God use us? We decide. God had a plan, and God made a promise. But boldness and courage would not be enough. If God was to use them in this plan, there would be a pattern to follow. God requires a pattern. If Joshua was going to be used by God, he not only needed to know about God's plan and to trust God's promises, but he needed to be full of God's word. Do not let this book of the law, verse 8, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Joshua was to meditate. Like an animal chews the cud, bringing back its food to draw more nourishment from it over and over again. So Joshua was not just to read God's word, but was to ruminate with it, to ponder it, to reflect it, to absorb it in every way. Coming back to it again and again that it might nourish his life. It's no different for you. And it's no different for me. We're not quite sure how much of the Bible it was. Probably only the first five books. But it was the beginnings. And Joshua needed to immerse his life in it. And we need to do the same. To chew the cud. To meditate on it in different ways. That's why Sunday is important. And what we do here. It's why your small group is important. Because you look at God's word in a different kind of way there. It's why your personal study is important. Because again in a different way. You're coming back to God's word. And drawing the nourishment from it for our lives. 
But notice what is often glossed over in this verse. Many people, just like I have done, hook onto that word meditate, and we miss the first bit. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You might expect it to say, do not let this book of the law depart from your ears, i.e. keep listening to it. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, i.e. not listen, but here, keep speaking it. Joshua was not simply to be someone who would meditate and hear and absorb God's word. He was also to be someone who would bring God's word out. An important part of being full of God's word is not just bringing it in, but it is bringing it out as well. Sure, Joshua was probably a preacher and proclaimer as well, but the Bible says we should all be speakers of God's word. We should all allow it to come in, but we should all be pouring it out as well. Look at what uh, God said to the people in Deuteronomy. These commands, this word of God, is to be on your heart. So what are you to do? You're to talk about them. Talk about them. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Another really good reason we're in small groups is it gives us an opportunity to talk about God's word. And why is it so important to talk about it, not just to listen to it? Because even as we talk about it, it takes greater root in our lives. Philemon in the New Testament understood this, didn't he? He said, uh, or the le- this letter here, Philemon 1.6, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Why? So that you, the person who's doing the sharing, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. In other words, as you speak out God's word, so your understanding of it will grow and develop and take root in your lives. God's word is something we must talk about and share together. This verse that we know quite well captures something of this sense, that the word of God dwells in us richly. We're bringing it in and we're feeding it out. We're bringing it in and we're feeding it out. If we're going to be used by God, then absorbing his word and feeding it out needs to be part of our life as a community. Now that's a step up for us, everybody, isn't it? We focus a lot about feeding it in about hearing and listening and so on. It's time to up the ante, everybody, and be a community where we're not just bringing it in, but we're feeding it out to one another. We're encouraging one another as God's encouraged us, as we're thrilled about something, so we're passing that on. As we're understanding something, say we're pointing it out to others. The word coming in and the word going out. The required pattern. What for? For their success and for their prosperity. How would it be? It would be by their careful obedience of everything written in it. Knowing the Bible is not the deal. Even loving the Bible is not the deal. Sometimes I meet Christians who love the Bible more than Jesus. They're in a hard place. They're in a hard place. You may know all the characters in Genesis. You may know those visions in Revelation, inside out. And you may know the three trillion different theories on each and every one. You may know every minute detail of the tabernacle. But if you don't do what it says, you've lost. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Never mind what you know, it's what you do. So that you may be able to obey everything. Not something how we wish it was. 
We need people to help us with this, don't we? May your small group help you with this. Help you to not only hear God's word, but to speak it out, but to more importantly, to help you do it. May your small group be praying for you as you try something new. May your small group be standing there to pick you up when sometimes you fall. May your small group be encouraging you to keep going when you feel like stopping. I need others to help me keep going at this, and you do too. And if Joshua and the people were going to be prosperous and successful, they had to live under God's word. Now maybe through 40 days you got this really sorted. Your studying of God's word, your praying was top-notch. Maybe at another time in your life you had it sorted, but somehow at some point, somehow when it slipped, if you really want to leave the desert and enter God's promise, it's time to come back. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. And so through these nine verses in Joshua chapter 1, God has been speaking to Joshua. God had a plan and God made a promise. God requires a pattern. But we can't leave chapter 1 without very quickly looking at the end. Because without recognizing something else, the plan and the promise and the pattern will come to nothing. You see, the plan and the promise and the pattern was not for Joshua alone, but it was for everybody. God was looking for partnership. God was looking for partnership. Entering the promised land was for all God's people. So, go through the camp, tell all the people, get everybody ready. This is something for everyone. Nothing has changed. Entering God's promise is not for the odd solo Christian. It's for the whole church. And we get there only when we do it together. I need you to be all that God wants me to be. And you need me to be all that God wants you to be. And we need each other to be everything God wants us to be. Isn't that the truth? No room for solo hikes. No room for pioneers that are a million miles away from the rest of us. Together, together we move into the promise land. It was a heck of a job, wasn't it? Three days to mobilize all of these people. All kinds of calculations are made about the number. Some people get up to two million. I doubt it was as many as that. But it was a vast number of people. Three days. Those who were scared needed to be encouraged. Those who were too weak needed to be strengthened. Those who were lacking in faith needed to be built up. Those who'd lost the vision, what on earth are we doing this for anyway, needed to be re-envisioned. They must have done a great job. Because do you know what? When they went, they all went. That's a pastor's dream. It's a pastor's dream. When they went, they all went. No one was left behind. All too often we carry the pain of those who wouldn't come. Those who didn't see the need to come. Those too distracted to come. Whatever. Those who were happy where they were. And as I look around this morning, I said, come on, let's, let's do this together. Hey? We can move together, can't we? Hello. Thank you. It's not about ones and twos, is it? What's the point in getting a couple of people into the promised land if the rest of us are still wandering around the desert, not even realizing the others have left? This is about together. Together we move. And we've been sensing that over the years. Together we're on the move as God's people. So they moved together, no one left. They would have to work at it though, really work at it. You see there were three tribes and that's what verses 12 to 15 
are about. There were three tribes who were going to settle to the east of the Jordan. So in a sense, they were, they were as good as there. They didn't need to bother crossing the Jordan and getting involved in all the messy stuff of, of conquering the land. But Joshua said, no, you're to help your brothers. We're all in this together. No one settles till we all settle. All in the promise or none in the promise. We go together. And so it is with us. If one ministry in our church is struggling, we've got to rally around and pick it up, haven't we? If one of those steps isn't working, we've got to rally around and make it happen. It's no good you sitting on your step saying, hey, my step's working really fab. Because if the step below it isn't working or the step above it isn't working, people will not move up the staircase. People cannot move up a broken staircase. It's when it's working together. Strong together is how they began in Joshua chapter 1. And then the final two verses of the chapter remind us that the partnership God seeks is ultimately with him, with God. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. That was a struggle for the people, wasn't it? I'm sure. Now Moses had gone, would God still be with them in the same way? And we get this struggle from time to time, don't we? Some of you have gone to Soul Survivor and you've discovered that God is awesome. And you think, hey, back at Burlington, he's not like that. You go to Spring Harvest and you think, oh, God, he's so powerful. But when I go to my work, he's not like that. Same God. Same God. Same God with Moses as with Joshua now. Same God at Soul Survivor as is here. Same God, Spring Harvest as at your work. Same God you experience in some special little moment and you think, think, crikey, God's so fantastic in those moments, but it's not like that in ordinary life. Wrong. Same God. Is it? Same God. And ultimately, it's partnership with him. Same God. May God be with you as he was with Moses. And God had already said, I will be with you, just like I was with Moses. If God's for us, who can stand against us? Is it verse 3 or verse 4 of chapter 1 where it says, no one can stand? If God's with us, who can stand? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Hallelujah. He loves us. Because he loves us, he's going to bless us. And because he loves other people, he's going to use you to bless them. Same God. Same God. Same. And God, it's all about you. It's all about you. And all this, our lives, our church our families, our work, our leisure, and all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. 